3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. At an orchestrated media event uh, about Sunday week ago on the Gold Coast Light Rail, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull surprised our reform community by floating the need to finance infrastructure via the increase in, guess what, land values. And this is a policy position his wife Lucy Turnbull has long advocated as the deputy chair of the uh, uh, Sydney's Cities Experts Panel, amongst other things. So there was such interest in the concept that the very next morning I just happened to uh, slide on into John Fain's ABC Drive Time to discuss these concepts uh, of value capture that we've been advocating and pushing here on 3CR for over eight years now. So it's great to see it out in the mainstream. And today we discuss these concepts with an absolute expert in the field. His name's Rick Rybeck. He's the director of Just Economics out of Washington, D.C. And he has over 25 years experience in government and business in the field. So uh, we start by discussing a situation he experienced in government back in 97, 98 some landowners approached our office of mass transit asking the city to build a new transit station at a place called Rhode Island Avenue. We have a very busy line called the Red Line and there's a station called Union Station which is our train station uh, very close to the capital and the next station north at least at that time was Rhode Island Avenue which was about two miles away now that's a pretty long distance between stations in the middle of a, an urban environment. The area north of Union Station, sort of between Union Station and Rhode Island Avenue, a lot of this was sort of derelict industrial land, old railroad sidings that were obsolete and whatnot that were now vacant. And the landowners had been letting this land sit idle for a long time, but at this particular time, the downtown was beginning to revive and they thought, gee, you know, we've got prime land here near the capital, near the downtown, we should develop this for, for office buildings. And uh, they went to get permits and they were denied building permits. And the people in the office said, well, this land is, is only accessible by New York Avenue, Florida Avenue, and North Capitol Street. And these streets are full of traffic at rush hour. It would be very irresponsible for us to put any more traffic on these streets. But gosh, we can't help but notice that the red line runs right by these properties. If only there was a transit station there, we'd reconsider. So, of course, the landowners came to the District Department of Transportation and said, we want you to put a new transit station there. And I just happened to tag along with our mass transit director when he went to this meeting with the landowners. And I said, well, this is a great idea. Um, I think the city would love to have a, a transit station at that location. But uh, you know, the city doesn't have much in the way of money. And we know from past experience that the value of your land would rise considerably if we put a transit station there. So, uh, you know, how about, uh, how about you pony up if you want a station? And they kind of looked very glumly at me and I braced myself for physical violence. But <laughs> that just kind of ended the meeting. And uh, Very quickly. Very quickly, the meeting was over, and so 
the transit director and I went back to the office and he said, wow, Rick, I thought they were going to, you know, stab you or kill you or something. I said, I'm, I, I was kind of surprised they didn't do bad things to me too. And then we didn't hear anything from, for the longest time. And then out of the blue, probably about two or so months later, there was a press release from the mayor's office saying that private landowners had offered $25 million to build a new transit station at this location. So they basically agreed to create a special assessment district to help fund the, uh, the metro station there. So I had a very small role there in initiating that process. Very interesting, Rick. Well, uh, the, that's a great introduction to this concept of value capture. Do you think you could perhaps give us a more formal description of what value capture is? Well, value capture, at its most fundamental level, value capture is simply value given for value received. And it's, it, this is a term that's sometimes used even in the private sector. In the public sector, it's come to be understood in the context that most public goods and services are somewhat unevenly distributed so that certain locations are better served than others. And as a result of that, these public goods and services enhance or detract from the value of land. And value capture is simply the notion that if the public sector creates value in land, that value is then returned to the public sector that created it, rather than being left to be a windfall for those who are either lucky or shrewd enough to own the best served land. And within that concept, there seems to be a whole pile of different applications. And here in Australia, with Prime Minister Turnbull expressing his support of the land value capture concept, there has been uh, some jockeying for control of what terminology emanates through the public discourse. And tax increment financing was one that was quickly bandied about by the <laughs> Property Council of Australia. So uh, right. what's the difference between between value capture and uh, tax increment financing. Listeners, our aim today is to uh, delve into the, the depths of these different mechanisms because I bet we're going to be hit with seven or eight different versions of what some could argue is value capture. But Rick Rybeck is an expert in this field and as we've just heard, he's, he's seen both sides of the fence and Rick, uh, it'd be great to have you take us through some of these differences. So tax increment financing. Well, you, you make a good, uh, ask a good question here. One of the things that's interesting is that for years, very few people knew or, or talked about value capture in this area. But within the last few years, it's become kind of a flavor of the month. And some people think that any revenue from, say, transportation that isn't either transit fares or highway tolls is value capture. And that's simply not the case. And some consultants misuse the term and apply value capture to techniques that really are not value capture. As we said a few minutes ago, value capture is the return of publicly created land values to the public that created it. Some people are now talking about techniques that return taxes on building values or income or sales tax and they refer to that as value capture. And while these techniques may be appropriate in certain circumstances and certain conditions, 
they are not value capture and they will not achieve some of the unique benefits that value capture can produce simply because they are not value capture. And one of the ways I describe that to people when we talk about value capture, I say, well, think of it this way. I could build a house for, for Paul and I could get Peter to pay for it. Now, that I'd, I'd recoup my cost, but that would not be value capture. That would be robbing Peter to pay Paul. Another thing I could do is I could build a house for Paul and I could recoup my money according to the length of Paul's trousers. And again, if I designed the system correctly, I might be able to recoup my cost. But there's really no connection between the value I'm creating in terms of the house and the value I'm receiving because the value of the house and the length of Paul's trousers don't relate to one another. So again, I might be able to recoup my cost, but it's not value capture. But if I build a house for Paul and I charge Paul a fee based on the value of the house I've created, that is value capture because there's a connection between the value I'm creating and the value I'm receiving. In the case of tax increment financing, that's what I would call revenue segregation, but not value capture. And let me explain what I mean by that. Typically, in the United States, and I'm not familiar with how tax increment financing is practiced in Australia, but most places in the United States, what the public will do is say, but for some new development, taxes in this defined area would be stagnant, would not increase. So we will benchmark all the tax revenues in this area at the present time. And this could include property taxes, income taxes, sales taxes, or some combination of them. And so we'll say any revenue we receive from this area in the future that's at this benchmark level will go into the general fund as it does today. But should there be any revenue over and above that benchmark level, we'll put that into a special fund. And that fund will be used to pay probably for infrastructure improvements. And, and it's a, an interesting kind of fiction to assume that tax revenue in this area would be stagnant but for this project. And what it does is it allows public officials to create an appearance that the development is self-financing when in reality they're robbing the general fund. Because if the, if the public officials had said, well, we're going to spend public dollars to create infrastructure that will benefit a few property owners, people would say, well, that's not acceptable. But by using this revenue segregation scheme and calling it value capture, they make it seem as if there's no cost to the public sector. Okay, well, I'll just attempt to reiterate that so that they use the fact that the new train station will lead to more businesses setting up in the area and those businesses within a geographical location will bring in extra company tax, extra sales tax, and so that increase in tax revenue would go to finance the infrastructure, uh, which in effect would be a tax on the productive sector rather than uh, targeting the real winners who are the landowners who benefit from the increased amenity of being able to get into the city in, in under 15 minutes, for example. That's right. 
So yeah, it, it's it's a little it, it's a little complicated, but once you get your head around it, that it's not really targeting the the windfall gains in land. It's 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 penalising business for being productive. Right, and I, and I'll I'll tell you, you you're right to note that it can be a little complex, and and here's a way I like to simplify it for people, because most people understand the concept of user fees, and user fees are simply what we pay for public goods and services as if they were private commodities. In other words, it's a price. And examples of user fees include tolls that we pay to to drive on roads or, for example, a lot of us pay a per gallon fee for water and sewer services. And this makes a lot of intuitive sense. If I drink a gallon of water or flush a gallon of sewage, I should pay for each gallon of of water I consume or flush. And that seems to make sense. The more people consume or flush, the more they pay. People are paying for what they get. And in addition, there's some great incentives that go along with that. So for example, if I have a leaky faucet and I, I don't just see water going down the drain because I'm paying a per gallon fee, I see my money going down the drain too. And that gives me a big incentive to fix that leaky faucet. Now, we could pay for water and sewer with a sales tax. But if I had a leaky faucet, would I be as inclined to fix it? Would I go out and make some purchase that I don't need simply to reimburse the water and sewer authority for the water I'm wasting? Probably not. So people understand this notion of a user fee. But to get to the point you were making about value capture, what about somebody who owns a vacant lot? They're not drinking any water, at least not there. They're not flushing any toilets, at least not there. Do they owe anything to the Water and Sewer Authority? And that's a good question. And the way to answer it is by looking at two different vacant lots, each the same distance from a vibrant town center where the economy is thriving. Lots of people want to live and work in this place. And here are two vacant lots where there's lots of demand for new housing or business. They're the same distance from, from the town center. They're the same in every respect except vacant lot number one has water and sewer pipes right at the property edge. Property number two does not have water and sewer pipes within a half mile, which piece of land is more valuable. Mm, obviously the one with good service. You're exactly right. Property number one that has the water and sewer pipes right next to the property boundary is going to be more valuable. And thus, even though that owner isn't drinking any water or flushing any toilets, they're benefiting from the effort of the water and sewer authority to construct and maintain uh, water and sewer service at the property boundary because to develop the other property would be much more expensive, either in terms of digging wells and septic systems or in terms of paying for the extension of pipe over a half-mile distance. So that's the case where what the Water and Sewer Authority is doing is benefiting the landowner through land value creation, and that's where the whole idea of value capture comes from. And you mentioned user pays there. Uh, would a fair term be to describe value capture as a beneficiary pays system? Exactly. So just as in the case of the user fee, 
where the more you consume, the more you pay, and people get the fairness of that. In a value capture approach, people pay a tax or a fee, I prefer to call it a fee, in proportion to the benefits they're receiving. So if you live on a piece of land where there's no benefit from, from public goods and services, or perhaps there's a, a dump nearby that, that makes living or working on, on this piece of land unattractive, there would be very little value there and you'd pay very little. On the other hand, if you had a piece of land that was next to a transit station, near good schools, near good shopping and working opportunities, well, the public has created a great deal of value there and you would pay in proportion to the value you receive. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and this week we're talking to Rick Rybeck, the Director of Just Economics, based in Washington, D.C. And, Rick, uh, there's a lot of different terms in, in the world of value capture, and today we're sort of dispelling some of the misnomers out there. Uh, two of the ones I wanted you to highlight uh, were exactions and development impact fees. And these exactions are an interesting one. I'm not sure whether we really use that term here in Australia, but we certainly hear of uh, developers having to provide something like 10 to 20% of public space surrounding a development if it's above 20 stories high, for example, or providing a childcare centre or something like that. So what are the ins and outs of exactions and how does it differentiate from a genuine and land value capture mechanism. Right. Um, yeah, the, there are two things that are similar, and I'll, I'll describe the differences, um, exactions and impact fees. In the United States, exactions are in-kind services that we expect from developers in exchange for giving them development permission. So, for example, if somebody was to proposed building a housing subdivision, the government might say, well, this subdivision is of sufficient size that we would need an additional school to educate the children from this development. So we're going to ask you to build a school as part of your subdivision. That would be an exaction. An impact fee is similar but slightly different. The impact fee, we'd say, well, you're going to build the subdivision. It's going to generate this many children. That will add our cost for educating the, the public school system by X dollars. Therefore, based on a formula, you have to pay us X dollars in order to get your development permits. So in one case, the exaction, it's an in-kind contribution. In the case of an impact fee, it's the uh, payment of a of a fee based on a formula that's tied to the cost impacts of development. And so in the first case, you could describe the exaction as cost avoidance. And in the case of impact fees, you could call it cost reimbursement. But again, unless you're recapturing and returning land values to the public sector, it's not value capture. It's something else. Very interesting, Rick. Well, uh, let's break out of these uh, more technical discussions to discuss 
the exciting extension of the number seven train line in New York, where from my reading in the New York Times just the other week, uh, it was quite radical that uh, Mayor Bloomberg of the New York uh, local municipality decided to step in and finance what was a state-run a transport line, uh, and he he engaged in that finance because his number crunches had said, look, this development will lead to an extra $30 billion in property taxes over the next 30 years. So uh, with that, they quickly financed the building of the train line to the Hudson Yards. Uh, we've also seen uh, the utilisation of value capture theory in London with the Crossrail Tunnel, and it's almost like gridlock has got to such a a confounding factor within public policy that uh, finally uh, planners and economists are recognising that what we've been talking about for uh, hundreds of years uh, really is the missing ingredient. Yeah, one of the things that we mentioned early on was that oftentimes public works creates land value and then that land value ends up as a windfall to whoever is lucky or shrewd enough to own the land next to the improved infrastructure, whether it's a new school, a new highway interchange, or a new transit station. And clearly, at one level, if we fail to collect this revenue, we end up, as we often see today, with governments that are creating enormous amounts of value, and yet they run around with their hat out and their hand out saying, we're broke, we can't afford the public goods and services that we're providing, we must raise taxes and fees on everybody because we're broke. In the meantime, they're giving this value away. On the one hand, you could say, well, the failure to implement value capture is just a lost opportunity. But it's worse than that because the ability of private landowners to get a windfall from publicly created land value is the fuel for land speculation. And land speculation is a parasitic activity that periodically brings the economies of our cities, states, nations, and sometimes the world to its knees. Every major recession and depression in the United States that I'm familiar with has been preceded by a real estate boom and bust. I'm not familiar with the history in Australia, but perhaps you know the history there. But certainly here... Uh, real estate booms and busts have been uh, terrible for the economy and terrible for the typical resident and business. And by not implementing value capture, not only are we losing a revenue opportunity, but we're encouraging this parasitic activity, which is destructive for the well-being and sustainability of our economies and society. Yes, uh, I had to laugh in the latest uh, series of True Detective. Uh, Vince Vaughan, his character, summed it up nicely by saying land rezoning is the last remaining pork barrel next to defence. Well, that's a good point. We, did, we haven't talked about rezoning, but like the uh, building of water and sewer lines or the creation of transit stations in the right places, uh, changing the zoning on a piece of land is a public action that results in sometimes very dramatic changes in land values. And the question is, well, who do those land values belong to? Do they belong to the 
landowner who's just lucky enough to be the recipient of the rezoning, or does it belong to the public sector that actually created it? And I think that if publicly created value is returned to the public that creates it, you end up with a more fair and just economic system. Likewise, when you allow privately created value to be retained by the private sector actors that create it, you end up with a more efficient and fair system as well. I asked Rick Ryback at this point to discuss something else he specializes in. It's called performance parking pricing. So let's have a listen to him on that. If you think about it, the public streets are are publicly owned land and oftentimes by allowing free or underpriced parking, we're subsidizing some people's use of that publicly owned resource at the expense of others. And we may also encourage some very... Um, bad decision making. So for example, we tell people that it's free to park and drive in congested places in congested times and we're shocked that so many people are driving in congested places at congested times. And politicians and others will say, are all these people crazy? What's wrong with them? Well, they're not crazy. They're making the best decision they can, but perhaps with some very bad information. And if we price roads and parking, based on their value, and often that entails pricing them according to the level of congestion, that helps people make better decisions. So for example, when a new ballpark was created near the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., the area where it was created was an old industrial area where there was no curbside parking regulation because there were no activities going on there. There was no demand for parking in the area. But now with a new ballpark going in and uh, a new uh, redevelopment of residents and businesses nearby, we were very concerned. Most baseball games happen in the evening, and if people wanted to drive to the stadium, they would be driving there just during the peak of the evening rush hour. And so a bad rush hour could change from a congested condition to gridlock, which is just awful. And uh, at the same time, if people parked for three or four hours, which is the length of a baseball game, it means that these new businesses in the neighborhood wouldn't be able to get customers. Customers wouldn't get access to the curb. So what we decided to do was install some computerized parking meters that would know when the games were being played. They're, of course, scheduled in advance. And for the first hour, at all times, they would charge the typical rate, which was maybe a dollar or two an hour. But if a game was being played and somebody wanted to park at the meter for a second and third hour, the price of the second and third hours would be priced at $12 an hour. Now, when we initially uh, raised, sort of uh, informed the media about this, there was a fellow from the Washington Post, our, our major paper here, who said, well, that's crazy. Who do, you, who do you think is going to pay $12 an hour to park at the curb? And our response was, well, actually, that's the point. We don't expect people to pay $12 an hour to park at the curb. And we think that when they understand that's the price, they'll make different decisions. They'll decide that if they're going to drive to the ball game, they'll park in the off-street parking garage next to the stadium, and that would be cheaper. And if they want to save money, they'll take the transit, which has a, a stop just one block away from the stadium entrance. And indeed, that's what happened. People by far 
take transit to the station. And as a result, we haven't had the kinds of traffic and congestion catastrophes and cataclysms that people were predicting when the stadium was being constructed. And the, the little slogan that I came up with to help people understand, because when you raise parking prices, people think, oh, the mayor's just out to gouge us. They're just out to get more money. But that wasn't the case. We were trying to give people better information so they'd make better decisions. And the little slogan I came up with was, it's more about getting into your head than getting into your wallet. And there we have Rick Rybeck from Just Economics llc.com just economics llc.com i'll put up the details to that and there's very interesting um uh, delineations on value capture there is all sorts of attention happening in policy worlds there's senate inquiries it's incredible uh, things are really changing before our eyes so it's very exciting uh, at earthsharing.org.au and our parent organization prosper.org.au so thanks very much for listening to the renegade economist here on the beloved 3CR Airwaves. I look forward to unraveling the powers of monopoly next week. Till then. Do you have a community event or campaign you'd like to announce on radio? Maybe your group would like to take a tour of 3CR and find out how community radio works. Are you in a band and would like to record a demo? Or maybe there are people in your workplace or activist organisation who would like to undergo media skills training. 3CR is a resource for the community and offers community announcements, station tours, studio hire and media skills workshops at affordable prices. For more information, contact 3CR on 9419 8377 or go to our website www.3cr.org.au.